Gresham College presents Did the Universe Have a Beginning? by Richard Sarabji, OBE, Gresham Professor of Rhetoric. Not measurable time, but all sorts of time that we couldn't possibly know about since breakfast. But then doesn't that begin to sound a rather absurd idea? Doesn't that rather discredit the whole idea that there could be time without change? Well, that's what some people think. And yet, on the other side, there are some people who think that there could be time without change. There are some people who think that there are not only atoms of physical matter, but also atoms of time. An atom of time would be a tiny, tiny little portion of time which is so small that it's indivisible, that you can't make sense of the idea of half of that time. Now, I have not seen any argument which convinced me that that made sense, but certainly some physicists have thought that that made sense in many different periods, including antiquity, but also in more recent times. If it were true, then I suppose, what, how long is a time atom going to be? A billionth of a second, say? Well then, for a billionth of a second, nothing would be moving or changing at all. Because nothing could um, be in a different state halfway through the time atom from what it was at the beginning or end of the time atom, simply because there is no halfway through. That's how I was introducing the idea of a time atom. A, a period so short that it didn't make sense to talk of halfway through. So it wouldn't make sense to think of something having changed its state halfway through. It would have to retain its state until the end of the time atom. So if anybody believed in time atoms, they would have to believe there were tiny little periods in which there was no change at all. But here's another possibility. What do you think of this? You know, you know on a freezing winter day, you can look out of your window and see nothing moving at all. Nothing changing. It's absolutely still outside. Oh, something changes because your thoughts change. You think, goodness, it's still, and so you have a new thought. But now, supposing you retain that thought, everything is still, and you just hold that thought without changing it any further for what feels like quite a time. And then it seems to be over, and you realize that the clocks haven't moved on. Even the clocks weren't moving. So it's very surprising. And then your friends begin to telephone you and say, I've just had a very extraordinary experience, and they've experienced the same thing. Turns out that everybody all over the world had simultaneously experienced an experience as if there was time, but nothing was changing, not even their clocks. Would this be evidence that there had really been time, though we couldn't tell how long because the clocks weren't moving, even though it was a time when there was no change. I mean, the original objection <clears throat> to 
there being time without change was that there might have been all sorts of changeless time since breakfast, and how would we ever know? So wasn't it rather meaningless to postulate it, like postulating there are lots of gremlins in this room, but uh, of course one can't ever detect them. Rather an empty hypothesis. But now we might detect these changeless times. So perhaps there is no objection to the idea of changeless time. But what about changeless time that lasted infinitely long before the universe began? How could anybody detect that? That would be much more difficult to detect. Um, might there be angels who were unchanging and unchangeously held the thought, nothing changes, nothing changes? They didn't change their thoughts. They just had the one thought, nothing changes. And then suddenly they had a new thought. My goodness, this is a physical universe here. Everything's changing. Would that be possible? Would an infinite period of time before the universe began in which there was no change be detectable? I'm asking this because what people have said is that if it wasn't detectable, it would be a hypothesis as empty as the hypothesis of undetectable gremlins in the room. But perhaps it would be detectable. So Augustine's question is not easy to answer. Would it make sense to talk of time without change? Well, on his view, no, but there are arguments on both sides. On his view, change only began when the physical universe began. There was no time before that. There was no sooner. And so we can answer the why not sooner question. I don't think that's the end of the matter, though. Because there's another way of making perfectly good sense of the why not sooner question. Think of it this way. If, you, if somebody says, perhaps the universe began a billion years ago, I can raise the why not sooner question in the following way. I can just ask, well, what possible reason would there be why it shouldn't have begun a billion and one years ago? I've asked the why not sooner question now by imagining starting from the present and thinking backwards. And so when the advocate of a beginning for the universe said a billion years ago, for example, I just said, why not a billion and one years ago? And so I've made sense of the question. And you see, I'm no longer in danger of speaking of time in which there was no change. Because if there had been this extra year, in addition to the billion past years, there would have been extra change. A year is the time in which the Earth goes round the sun. Or some equivalent time. <coughs> so many atomic oscillations, if you like. So you could put my question by saying, if you say that the universe began a billion revolutions of the Earth ago, or some even higher number of atomic oscillations ago, I can ask the question, why didn't it begin 
all that number of oscillations or revolutions ago, plus one. Plus one. I'm not postulating time without change because I'm talking of revolutions or oscillations of an atom. And so the extra year I'm asking about is not a year um, separated from changes. It would be a year accompanied by uh, oscillations or revolutions of the Earth around the Sun. And so I'm not talking nonsense in saying we can ask the question, why not sooner? It's a perfectly intelligible question. But now it might, however, prove that in principle it could have an answer after all. Of course I don't know what the answer is, but that's not what's at issue. The problem was that if you say the universe had a beginning, there couldn't conceivably be a reason why it didn't begin sooner. But now, if the why not sooner question is given my sense, why were there not a billion plus one revolutions of the Earth f before now, rather than just a billion? That makes sense of the question, all right, but it also means that one could conceive of the possibility of an answer. I've no idea what the answer would really be, but we could imagine possible answers for the first time. For example, if, like Augustine, you believe in God as a creator, well, he might have thought, and if, like, um, if, like some of the ancient Greeks, you believe that humans have always existed as long as the universe, then you might say, well, God foresaw that humans would have degenerated one extra year if he'd started the universe an extra revolution ago. Humans would have degenerated a whole extra year before they had to face the tribulations of this year. And they would have been less able to face up to the tribulations of this year and might have collapsed altogether. So, I mean, it's not inconceivable that there might have been a reason. I'm not saying I know what reason there was. But it's no longer inconceivable that there should have been a reason for the universe not to begin sooner, now that I've given this sense to why not sooner, namely, why not one extra revolution before now. So I think the first argument against a beginning hasn't succeeded, because although the why not sooner question seemed <clears throat> initially a fair question which was unanswerable, now that we've made it a fully intelligible question, it turns out no longer to be unanswerable in principle. Of course, I don't know what the answer uh, might be, <clears throat> if there's a beginning, but it no longer seems unanswerable in principle. So the first argument against the beginning seems to me not to work. Now, let me be quicker over the other two arguments. The second argument can be put in two different forms. If the universe began, presumably there was some sufficient cause of it beginning. But if there was a sufficient cause, why would the sufficient cause delay its effect? Why would the sufficient cause be there before the beginning? If sufficient, surely sufficient means that 
it would explode into its effect at once. What is it waiting for if it's already sufficient? This sort of argument is usually put by people who, like Augustine, believe in a creator God. If a creator God is a sufficient cause for the universe to begin, well, if he's sufficient, what is being waited for? A sufficient cause should surely have its effect at once. There's another way of raising a rather similar sort of problem. It's not quite the same problem. But funnily enough, a lot of people who believe in God as a creator believe that God is changeless. The argument, which is a very ancient argument, is that if God is perfect, then any change would be a change for the worse. I don't think that is actually a conclusive argument because you'd have to know that changeability wasn't itself a type of perfection, better than being static. You'd have to have some argument to show that. But it was very widely accepted in antiquity that a perfect God would be changeless. So we can also raise a similar puzzle by saying, look, if, if, if God is changeless, um, and if he exists before the universe began, well, if he's changeless, surely he'd need the aid of some triggering event. The universe is not going to begin with just a changeless call cause. If God is changeless, why should anything become different? God would need to have as a supplement some triggering event which made this the right moment for the universe to begin. Now both of these arguments, a changeless God would need a trigger and God as sufficient cause <coughs> wouldn't delay his effect. These two arguments were both answered by an Islamic philosopher in the 11th century. We don't have to bother with names, but his name is Ghazali. And he said, no, look, even with humans, let alone with God, even with humans we have something pretty close to a changeless cause, which manages without a trigger. I think we could also say that it's a sufficient cause that delays its effect. And what's his example? Well, under Islamic law, a husband can say to his wife, I divorce you with effect from tomorrow. And then he hasn't got to do anything. Just folds his arms, and so long as he doesn't revoke it, the divorce takes effect tomorrow. So there he is. His will is a changeless cause because at least for 24 hours, he doesn't have to change at all in order to produce the divorce. <clears throat> he doesn't need a trigger, unless you call the arrival of tomorrow a trigger. But God doesn't even need the arrival of tomorrows in order for the world to begin. Uh, there aren't any tomorrows, and he doesn't need them. God, of course, being more powerful than humans, doesn't need Islamic or any other kind of law. The husband looks like a changeless cause that doesn't need a trigger and a sufficient cause for the divorce that nonetheless delays his effect. Now, 
A human needs a few aids. He needs some law to be in place. And he has to form this decision to declare a divorce, whereas God doesn't have to change his mind or depend on law. So God is going to be more powerful than the husband and all the more should be able to be a sufficient cause delaying his effect or a changeless cause not needing a trigger for the world to begin. So if um, Ghazali is right, <clears throat> the second argument also doesn't interfere with God giving the world a beginning. Neither of our two arguments have yet shown the world couldn't have had a beginning. Neither the why not sooner argument, nor the a sufficient cause can't delay its effect, or changeless cause <coughs> needs a trigger argument. Now there's just one last argument from people who believe in a creator God that I shall mention. Those people who think there's a creator God and uh, that he's changeless, say, look, but God can't be content to do without a physical universe and then change his mind. Changeless God can't change his will. Suddenly start willing. But the best answer to that was given also by St. Augustine in 400 AD. He said, willing a change does not imply changing your will. It's quite a simple answer, but I think it's effective. God doesn't have to change his will and think, oh, now I'm going to have a universe begin. I not willed that before. No, it's only the effect that's the change. You switch from no universe to universe. But the cause doesn't have to change. It's a changeless will that there shall be a change, namely the beginning of the universe. Now, I think that's a good answer. Um, I think that's a good answer. So, none of the three arguments against a beginning seem to have worked. The last one being the changeless God mustn't change his will. Answer, he doesn't have to. He just wills a change. He doesn't change his will. So I've got no philosophical arguments against a beginning. Let's us now finish by looking at the other side. Are there any conclusive arguments for a beginning of the universe? Well, if any of you were here in December 2000, you will know that there were some considerations about an infinite past that were used in the 6th century AD by one of my fa favorite philosophers, a Greek philosopher. We don't have to worry about names. His name was Philoponus. Philoponus means workaholic. Uh, well, Philoponus, the workaholic, <clears throat> he was a Christian. And so he took the very unusual Christian view that the universe had a beginning. I say that's very unusual. Indian philosophy doesn't believe the universe had a beginning. Pagan Greek philosophy didn't believe the universe had a beginning. Perhaps this cycle of the universe could have a beginning. Yes, lots of people believed that. But the Christian idea that it had an absolute beginning and there was nothing there until it began, 
That's a pretty unusual view. Now, Philoponus was both a Platonist, but unlike most Platonists, he was a Christian in the 6th century. And he used the argument that Christianity must be right, the universe had a beginning, because otherwise you'd have had an infinite past. Well, what's wrong with an infinite past? Ah, well, infinity is rather a frightening concept. And Aristotle had taken the fright out of infinity by a very clever account of what it was, an account which is still taught in almost all schools today. School teachers tend to avoid frightening their pupils by saying, look, when I say infinity, I'm not talking about a more than finite number. Let's forget about that. I'm just talking about getting as close as you like or <clears throat> um, approaching a limit. Approaching a limit just involves a very large finite number of steps. And that seems safer than a more than finite number. And this tradition starts with Aristotle in the 4th century BC. He said, look, we'd have horrible puzzles if we talk about infinity in the sense of a more than finite number. The puzzle that worried him most was this. Take the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. There's an infinity of them in some sense of infinity. And take the even numbers just. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. There's an infinity of those. And yet, surely, the even numbers are only half of, of the totality of numbers. How, if one is only half the other, can they both be infinity asked? So to avoid that, he said, let's think of infinity a different way. Not as a more than finite number of anything, but as an ever-expandable finitude, an ever-expandable finite number. That's just what school teachers are saying now when they talk of approaching a limit. As large a finite number of steps as you like, but finite, always finite. Well, that's very safe, and it fits very well with the future. Think of the future instead of the past for a moment. Surely the future years, if you start from now, are going to be infinite, if at all, only in Aristotle's safe sense. If you have a starting year now, in 2003, you'll never have a, a more than finite number of years after now. You'll only have Aristotle's ever-expandable finite number. One day, if things go on indefinitely, there'll be a million, then there'll be a billion, then there'll be a billion plus one. Any number you like to name, eventually, if things go on, there'll be a higher finite number of future years after 2003. But that doesn't mean we'll ever reach a more than finite number. Aristotle's account of infinity seems perfect for future years. But it's quite wrong for past years, isn't it? Because if the universe had no beginning, the universe will already finish going through a more than finite number, surely. So the infinity of past years doesn't seem to fit the unfrightening account given by Aristotle and modern school teachers. It really does look like a more than finite number if the universe had no beginning.
Perhaps this could be used as an objection um, <clears throat> against a beginningless past. Perhaps you could argue, since there's only going to be an expandable finitude of years in the future, surely we should expect no more than an expandable finitude of years in the past. Why should the past be different from the future? Surely we should expect a finitude in the past too. No. The answer to that is this. There's a reason why the future is different from the past here. Because when I thought about the future years, I took a starting year, 2003. I could have taken any year, actually. It didn't matter which I took as the starting year. I could have taken 1066 or any year I liked. I'd get the same result that if you've got a starting year, then there will never come a time when you can say, ah, oh, now I've managed to fit in a more than finite number of years since the starting year. But of course, those people who think there's a beginningless history for the universe don't postulate a starting year. That's precisely what they're denying. And if you don't postulate a starting year, there's been ample time to fit in a more than finite number of years before now. So there's a good reason why a more than finite number is possible for the years before 2003, because there's no starting year, but not for the years after 2003, because you've imposed a starting year. One shouldn't think that if somebody speaks of an infinite past with no beginning, that they're saying that there's some year, or perhaps even lots and lots of years, that are separated by an infinite distance from now. That's not what's meant. When one talks of an infinite collection of years, the infinity, the more than finiteness of those past years, is not a property of some one year or even of any of the individual years. It's a property of the collection as a whole. So you can't say, but it's absurd to say that the some year or several years or many years that are separated from now by an infinite gap, because that isn't what these people were saying who postulated the beginningless universe. No, the more than finite number of past years that they were talking about belongs to the collection of years as a whole. It doesn't belong to any of the individual years. It has been objected that there can't have been a more than finite number of past years because one couldn't count a finite number. It's true one couldn't, by any ordinary techniques, count a finite number, but that's once again because the whole process of counting involves taking a first starting number. So if you take a first starting number for your counting, you're not going to be able to fit in a more than finite number <coughs> of things you count uh, before you finish your counting. But although counting involves taking a starting number, the, it's a quite different task for the universe simply to pass through a more than finite number of years. Passing through a more than finite number of years does not involve taking a starting year. Precisely not. And so the objection to finishing an infinite count isn't an objection to finishing an infinite passing through. Now let me give you a last excruciating 
attack on the idea of a beginningless past before I return to Philoponus. I have not told any of uh, the groups of the present arguments I'm giving you now about um, infinite counts and so on, and I haven't told you um, the problem of Hilbert Sattel. Some people have said that if you could have a more than finite number of anything, then you could have an imaginary Attell, not, of course, a real Attell, but an imaginary Attell with a more than finite number of rooms. But now, these people say, we can show that that's ridiculous. There couldn't be an Attell with a more than finite number of rooms because, imagine, supposing that there was such an Attell and every room was full, now along comes a latecomer and he says, look, I'm sorry I'm late, he says to the manager, but could you fit me in? And then the manager, if there was a more than finite number of rooms, would be able to say, certainly I can fit you in. In a very loud voice, all he'd need to say would be, would the occupant of room number one move into room number two? Would the occupant of room number two move into room number three? Etc." And then he'd say, I've made room for you in room number one. Now, you may think there's something wrong here. You may feel that at the far end of the hotel, some unfortunate resident is going to drop off into outer space. But you needn't worry, because there is no farther end of this hotel. Because there's a more than finite number of rooms, there's one end of the hotel, room number one. <clears throat> but there's no far end. And so there's no place where anybody could drop off into outer space. There's no end. And so this idea that one could accommodate the late comer, which was supposed to be absolutely absurd, is actually no more than the plain and simple truth. It's not an absurdity, it's a truth. In an hotel with a more than finite number of rooms, one could fit in the late comer. Now, coming back to my last, my last point, which is what was said about this by Philoponus in the 6th century, coming back to that, I hope this will become a little bit plainer with my last example. Now, Philoponus, though he wasn't terribly well known 10 years ago, I think he was a very, very clever philosopher. And on behalf of Christianity, he said, look, all you pagan Greeks have agreed with Aristotle's non-frightening account of infinity as just an expandable finite number. And you've agreed with his view that one can't finish going right through a more than finite number. So you pagan Greeks must agree with Christianity that the universe can't have finished going right through a more than finite number of years. And there's something else. If the universe had finished going right through a more than finite number of years by this year, how many years would it have finished going right through by next year? Infinity plus one. But surely, um, Aristotle himself said, you can't have some infinities larger than others. Um, things can't be of different sizes because they contain an extra one year, and yet both equally infinite. 
They can't be equal and yet one's got one more than the other. He thought that that was an absurdity. Well, you pagans, you're in that absurdity. Because if you think the universe, as you all do, had no beginning, you've got to say that by this year it's finished going right through a more than finite number of years, and next year it will be infinity plus one, a more than finite number plus one. So you're in what you agree to be an absurd position. Now, I don't know whether any Greeks um, really understood how to get out of that problem about some infinities being larger than others. There is a single page written by the great mathematician Archimedes, which is being studied under ultraviolet light at the moment, very, very difficult to read, and it seems to be mentioning different sizes of infinity. That's one possibility. But otherwise, I think it was Islamic medieval philosophy after the end of the Greek period that I'm talking about, which was fully aware in the ninth century of the sense in which um, <clears throat> the even numbers are fewer than the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and the sense in which they're not fewer. Um, an, Arab, uh, an Islamic philosopher called um, Ibn um, Tabit, Kura, seems to have understood this in the ninth century. An English philosopher called Grosstest seems to understand that this is true. In the 13th century, um, he was the Chancellor of Oxford University and Bishop of Lincoln. And I'm assuming he must have had a Latin translation of Islamic philosophy available to him or Islamic mathematics. Uh, because, it, as, as I say, it was probably not known to the Greeks. It was fully understood in the 14th century by Latin writing philosophers, including another English philosopher, not otherwise well-known, called William of Annick, and he explained it in the following way. It is possible for the years up to 2003 and the years up to 2004 to be both equally more than finite and yet in a certain restricted sense, one larger than the other. It's the difference between beyond and besides, said William of Annick in the 14th century. Now, imagine. Imagine that the years up to 2003 stretch out in an unending column from your right eye. Now imagine that the apparently larger number of years up to 2004 are stretching out in an unending column from your left eye into the distance. And imagine that the years are matched in pairs, 2003 against 2004, and so on, so that they're matched in pairs. If you can imagine these two columns of years stretching infinitely into the distance, I can now explain the difference between beyond and besides. One column has all the same years as the other column, plus one besides, because it's got 2004 in addition. It's got one extra year. So if you like to call that larger, you can call it larger in the restricted sense of having all the same years in it, 
plus one year besides. In that restricted sense, it would be larger. In a different sense, however, it would not be larger. It would not be larger in the sense that one column would stick out beyond the far end of the other. It would not stick out beyond the far end of the other, because neither column has a far end. It's rather like Hilbert's hotel, actually, in which the residents don't stick out beyond the far end of the hotel. Since it doesn't stick out beyond the far end of the other, in that sense, it's not larger. That, I think, was the clearest explanation of how you can have one infinity in a restricted sense larger than another, while at the same time, in a different sense, the beyond sense, it's not larger. That was a very clear explanation, but it took, it took an extra 700 years after Philoponus before in the 14th century um, people were able to explain that. <clears throat> so the net result is, I think, that these very startling facts about infinity, um, that things can be both equally infinite even though one's got an extra member, Though they're very startling, they are absolutely true. And perhaps we can begin to understand them better when it's explained in this way in terms of besides versus beyond. They're startling, but they are true. And we shouldn't think that they show the whole idea of a more than finite number is absurd. And so I conclude that this side of the argument has also not been conclusive. The people who say... We can prove that Christianity is right, that the universe had a beginning, because an infinite past would be absurd. They've been very ingenious and very interesting, but I don't think they've succeeded in the end. So where have we got to? Physics admitted right at the beginning that it can't tell what happened before the Big Bang, so it can't answer the question whether the universe had an ultimate beginning. Philosophy was much more optimistic. It said, oh, we've got the most ingenious arguments here. And some said, so we can prove <clears throat> that there was no beginning. Those are my first three arguments. And others, using the problems of an infinite past, said, we can prove that there was a beginning. But in the end, I'm afraid, perhaps this is disappointing, it's turned out that philosophy isn't able to be more conclusive than physics. It remains uncertain whether the universe had a beginning or not. Does theology finally have anything to say? Well, Christians said that God would have a reason for giving the universe a beginning because it would make it more evident to human beings that they're utterly dependent on him. And it would perhaps increase human humility, which would be a good thing. But I'm not sure how strong that argument is. There was a 19th century Indian philosopher called Ramakrishna who said that actually we humans would be very much more humble if we believed, and then he mentioned something which Christians don't believe, although he, he wasn't making an anti-Christian remark, uh, if we believed that there were innumerable 
uh, different worlds uh, like so many crabs on the seashore so that we were just one. Then we would more fully take in how insignificant we were and our sense of humility would surely be very much greater. So um, there were other Indians who said that the reason why Indian philosophy doesn't postulate an absolute beginning, as Christianity does, is that if there was an absolute beginning and it was produced by God or by a God, then that God would be responsible for all the problems and troubles. It's much better if it just existed all along without needing a God to bring it into being because then we can't hold God responsible. So the theology does have all sorts of things to say, but um, these things are again on different sides and the, what the Christians say um, is not necessarily stronger than what some of these Indian groups are saying. So turning to theology, I think, doesn't help us to settle the problem. All right, let's have a little discussion time. Next time, I will move from time to space, and I will talk about what it would mean to say that space was finite, because it's very hard to imagine that space has an edge. So what does it mean to say that space is finite? And also, I shall talk not only about whether space is infinite, large, but also whether it's infinitely divisible. So I'll talk about both the infinitely large and the infinitely small. But let's stop there. I've given you enough arguments and talked long enough. I shall be very interested to hear what you say. I will repeat questions to be quite sure that those downstairs can hear them. And if those downstairs are not able to ask me questions, I will stop behind for a few minutes afterwards so that they too can get a turn. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.